and welcome to the Hoop Collective podcast. We talk about the NBA, which we are doing on Monday afternoon. Joining me from Seattle, Washington, is the machine, Kevin Pelton. Hello, Mr. Pelton. Hey, Brian. Good to be back. Sorry about the Huskies' loss over the weekend. It's it, it was a rough weekend for UW football on a lot of fronts. <laughs> um, and then joining us from Los Angeles is uh, Kevin Arnovitz. Kevin, this is a very special day because this is our annual um, small sample size theater podcast where we take very small sample sizes and decide whether they're lasting. Yeah, I mean, this is, I mean, it's early, Brian. This is very, very small. This is like the Cherry Lane Theater down in the West Village. Like, like we're talking like 180 seats here. This is a very, very small sample size theater, which makes it all the more fun. What is even normal time now? I mean, a year ago, we were getting ready for the draft right now. What is normally early? We, we don't even know what our normal time frame is, what this is supposed to be. I did happen to look at my notes from last year, and I noticed that I went with 13 games as the cutoff instead of 10 this year. So I guess we did it a week later. All right. Fair enough. Or maybe we um, played 13 games in the same amount of time because last year's schedule was so messed up. Right. So so last year was the Manetta Lane Theater. This year, it's the Cherry Lane Theater. <laughs> oh, my gosh. My phone just went crazy. Um, yes. Okay. Uh, what was What's the name of the place where uh, uh, Upright Citizens Brigade used to be um, in New York? Um, this is what I'm thinking of in terms of small sample size. It was like in the basement. Um, all the Saturday Night Live people's careers started there. All right. Wait, no, oh, oh. No, it was over on the uh, on the west side near like the Lincoln Tunnel, I think. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah I, I forget what it's called, but right over there. Yeah. Yeah, it was in the basement, very low ceiling. All right. Um, so where I think we should start. Um, well, I want to start with Dame Lillard. Um, this is a. Um, you know, this is a guy who was is pretty much at the peak of his powers or so, you know, we believed um, you know, sort of hedged on what his future was going to be in the off season. There's numerous teams that were dying for him to, to, to say he wanted out because he's that superstar in the middle of his prime, who is built for this era with shooting the three who maybe just needs some more help. And guys, he is having thus far a, he's played 10 games to this point. Um, I think they play their next game Tuesday in Los Angeles, but um, he's averaging 10 fewer points per game than he did a year ago, 18 points down from, you know, 18 and a half down from 29. The big one though, guys, his, he's just shooting the ball terribly from three shooting 25% on threes uh, on 10 attempts a game. Last year, he took 10 attempts, actually 11 a game shot 39% the year before 10 attempts a game, 40%. His overall shooting, um, is 35% down 10% from last year on almost the exact same number of shots, maybe a hair less. He's playing a hair less per game under Chauncey Bills, about a minute less per game. Um, and I have been to a Blazers game this year. It was actually a game where he actually shot the ball reasonably well. But as I've watched him on television, he's just looked off. Everything about him has looked off. Um, he, he was playing with an injury during the Olympics. And... Um, they sort of they, they weren't specific about it, but they referenced that it was an abdominal injury. Um, and at the time during the Olympics, which is a slightly shorter three point line, 
he shot uh, 34% in Tokyo. Um, he had one game where he, where I believe he made seven threes, which was against uh, Iran. And if you take that game away, it was down around the uh, 25% mark, quite frankly, which is roughly what he's shooting. Now the Blazers protected him in the preseason, basically didn't play him that much. Um, you know, he isn't, but on the injury report, he hasn't talked about the injury. I, I, I don't know if it's still bothering him. Uh, Pelton, um, Damian Lillard, just 10 games. He has sort of been a little bit defiant about it. Should we be worried? Is this small sample size? That's no big deal. Or what do you think? I think our concern level is elevated, especially because of what you mentioned of the fact that this does date back to the summer in the Olympics. You, you mentioned the abdom- abdominal injury. That's something that he's dealt with for an extended period of time here. And it hasn't necessarily hampered his performance over you know, the, the extent, I mean, the last two seasons have been perhaps the best of his career offensively. So, you know, it, it didn't prevent him from doing that. And it wasn't like he was completely healthy all of that period. And now is dealing with this. So, you know, what I found interesting when I dug into the numbers was number one, the types of shots he's getting are basically the same as the last handful of seasons. They're down a little bit from the last two, but actually better shot quality than he had the previous few years. And he's just not making the same shots nearly as often. And uh, the particularly interesting thing that I noted when I wrote about this in my mailbag over the weekend is, you know, people have talked about, is the ball a possible explanation, the change in providers from Spalding to Wilson for any number of factors in what's happened and particularly the offensive decline around the league. And one thing you do see, three-point shooting is generally down. It does seem like there was an effect of playing in the empty gyms last year. A, A number of different ways of looking at it have isolated that. But specifically the shooting that's down for threes is those 25 feet and further is down about 10% from last season's Mm. final mark. Whereas all shots are down about 5% from three point range from last season's mark. So double the decline. And that's where you start. So logo Lillard with it. Yeah. Logo Lillard. Not so good with Wilson. Hmm. Interesting hypothesis, Mr. Arnovitz. No, it's funny. I, I went to the same numbers Kevin did. And, and what's amazing about Dame is just how remarkably uniform his shot selection is. Like like the shot quality number is, is within, what is it, like a quarter of 1% over the last four seasons. So, you know, to echo Kevin, what's mysterious about it is we're not seeing a guy who is, you know, working with different pick and roll partners and maybe that's throwing him off or, or his backcourt mate is somebody he hasn't played with. It's got to, you know, take some time. You know, a, a Russell Westbrook type has sort of come into his universe. Like none of that has happened, right? In fact, it's been about as static as it has been in Portland. And I, I have no explanation other than to do what what I don't like to do, which is speculate about health, right? Because I don't recall, and and you know, Brian, you have an encyclopedic memory, and I'm curious if you can think about this. Trying to think of a top 10 player who comes into a season in a relatively static environment and just underperforms at a level that we just, that is profound in this profound. And I can't really think of one. I can't think of, and again, not talking about that, that mysterious year 34, 35, where there is, you know, certain guys fall off the table, right? That you, you hit a wall physically. So I, I just have no explanation. I don't think it's that, Oh, Chauncey's running anything decidedly different. Um, because I, I don't think offensively the, the product is all that much different. I mean, Kevin watches them much more closely than I do, but I, I'm I'm completely riddled, which kind of leaves me to believe that if you're asking me to render a verdict, that we might be in a little small size sample theater. You know, is this yeah. 
a terrible nine, 10 game slump that just happens to come in games one through nine, one through 10, one through 11. Right. And and that is the explanation. And because I have nothing to believe that and certainly what any absolute cynic would suggest, which is, eh, you know, he's looking for a reason to get out. Is this a hardened last year situation without the heightened static, but he's doing no. I have no reason to believe that there's nothing in Dame's character and what he said that even suggests that. So I'm going to go with there might be some ailment that we're not hearing fully about uh, combined with the the gods of chance sending him on his worst slump ever in the first 10, 11 games of the 2021. Yeah, I, I was talking to us. I was talking to a, a scout and he doesn't see every Blazers game, but he said, you know, in the past, I could tell when Dame was being bothered by that injury. You could kind of see him favoring it a little bit. Um, obviously, this is a guy watching. It's not actually Dame Lillard. And he said, I'm not seeing that this year. I'm not seeing him favor sort of that that um, area. So I don't know what that means, but you you could be right now. I will say this: Dame tends to rise up in adverse conditions. A fair amount of adversity hitting the, the Blazers right now, with uh, them announcing an investigation into Neil O'Shea, the general manager, and they are winless on the road. They're five and one at home, but winless on the road, and they start a four-game road trip uh, in LA on Tuesday night: uh, uh, Clippers, Suns, Rockets, Nuggets. So three very good teams and a, pe- a plucky Rockets team that uh, especially on their court, if you don't play well, you'll get beat. And, and they have a couple of close losses, the Blazers. Um, so, um, you know, I sort of say, let's see where we are two weeks from now on that one. Um, all right. So um, a team that is uh, been in the news all year, I almost don't want to talk about on this early in the podcast, but it, they're, they're, they're just such a fascinating team at this point. The the, uh, the Philadelphia 76ers, who despite having all kinds of issues that you think would bother them, obviously the Ben Simmons situation, um, Joel Embiid hurts his knee uh, on the first night of the season. It's bothered him a little bit. He's missed a couple of games. Tobias Harris uh, is diagnosed with COVID. Um, he goes out. M- 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 Matisse Tybel diagnosed with COVID or COVID protocols, whatever you want to say. He is out. Um uh, they've had some other uh, minor injuries. And now uh, on Monday, uh, Joel Embiid goes into COVID protocol. Um, I think Woj reported he has tested positive and he's looking at being out for a period of time. I hope he's okay. By the way, we're up to about 10 players who've tested positive within the last um, couple of weeks. And the league has um, issued guidance that they want players who had the Johnson & Johnson shot to get a booster and if they don't get the booster, I think by the first week of December, they're regarded as unvaccinated. And so um, that's something to watch. I will say this being around a lot of NBA teams, um, I'm traveling a lot right now. I'm going to be around. I'm going to be at a number of games this week. Uh, I am definitely being careful um, because uh, even though I've vaccinated, I, um, you know, just it's spreading a little bit. But um, Mr. Arnovitz, um, he, despite all the things I just said, they're eight and two. And they do have a game tonight. We'll see how they handle that. They've they've had games where they've played very shorthanded and won. Um, and despite all of that stuff, we've almost had daily headlines of adverse stuff, whether it's with Simmons, the back and forth with him, uh, and then their other issues. Yet they just keep winning. W- what do we make of what, what's going on with them right now? 
Yeah, when I started digging in, I saw numbers that were just so startling that I, I really want to almost bring Pelton in here because I think they, they're above my pay grade, which is that the Philadelphia 76ers are exceeding shot making at a level that I have never seen beyond expectation, right? In other words, sort of in layman's terms, you know, if you take those same 80, 90, 100 shots tomorrow night, you know, how would you do? It's the old, you ask the coach after the game and he says, well, we take the same shots tomorrow. They're creating shots that are decent or that are fine. They're, you know, actually, in, in, in some cases, you would argue actually aren't that great. I mean, their shot quality. And yet they are hitting shots. Their effective field goal percentage at 57 and a half is, is so far beyond the next team. And that margin of overachievement is as high as I've ever seen at, at this stage of a season, at any stage of the season. So there are a couple different ways you can go on this. One is, is, they are due for a market correction like we have not seen. That if they just revert back to sort of the mean, they're a team that is, you know, a bit better than 500 possibly and, and you know, certainly has some pluck. They're a strong defensive team. But what we're seeing in terms of offensive performance just isn't really sustainable. Um, and, and that would be sort of the only interpretation you can get when you start looking at what they're doing offensively versus what they have offensively um, and what they've created offensively. Pelton, am I am I overreading? Because, again, I, I don't completely trust myself on this or or I mean, is it just insane that they are the top offensive efficiency team by two point one per hundred, which means there's a greater distance between Philly and number two, Utah. Then there is a between two and number five Sacramento. I mean, they are so far on their own end of the graph. Um, is is there just is there an element of chance here that is just more profound than anything that we're actually seeing substantively? I, I think you're on the right track here. So their shot quality, to your point, is 28th in the league thus far, Ooh. despite the fact that they have the best offense. And you know, your shot quality on offense is not as important on is de- on defense because of the fact that. You know, there are teams that with their ability, shot making ability can just overcome that. Brooklyn with their mid-range game is one of those right now. The Warriors, peak Warriors were. And so if you go back and look, I what I did was the comparison, again, that 10 games, first 10 games of the season in the second Spectrum database back through 2013-14, they have the forced, fourth best shot making above and beyond their shot quality over that stretch to start a season in that nine-year sample uh, for the top six are the Golden State Warriors during their finals run and the other teams, the 2014 Heat, who also made the finals. That was the year they lost to San Antonio. So either they are one of those teams and we don't necessarily think that they, I mean, they do have an MVP caliber player in Joel Embiid, but not the secondary talent that those teams had around LeBron James and and Kevin Durant and Steph Curry. Uh, Or they are probably going to drop off pretty dramatically. So their schedule has been very, well, I wouldn't say very favorable. Their schedule has been favorable. Like they've played the, the Pelicans. They've played the Pistons twice. Um, they played the, the Thunder. Um, they played the Nets real early when they were, the Nets were pretty struggling coming out of the gate. They, part of the reason their numbers are so good is certainly related to the schedule, although they have a couple of really nice wins. They blasted the Hawks by like 30. They had a really good win in Chicago over the weekend. But you know they play the Knicks on Monday night, so when you hear this podcast, we won't know what will have happened there. But um, starting Saturday, uh, they have a six-game road trip. 
And it looks like Embiid is going to miss a significant part of that, if not all of it. And I'm not sure when Tobias and Matisse are going to come back, depending on how they test and how they're going to feel and be, you know, because we see different things with guys coming off of COVID. Um, and so where they are in 14 days, uh, and that may not even still be a true representation because they will have played without Simmons in all likelihood without Embiid for a lot of that. We're not going to know, but I would say that a correction is coming fair or not to the 76ers. Um, but certainly at eight and two, considering what they're dealing with, they have to be thrilled, although not happy about their current situation. All right. The other, the other team that we are, are watching is just off to a, just a brilliant start. I can't remember what the Cavs over under was, but the Cleveland Cavaliers are seven and four um, in sixth place in the East. Um, they have been just tremendous on the road guys just tremendous on the road i i i i can't they went three and two on a, on a west coast trip you know first team to go out west which was like the first time they had a winning record on a west coast trip uh, obviously since lebron and then they just went on a two-game road trip to uh new york and the garden and they won both of those games and, and the one the game that they won in toronto i'm sorry did i say new york in the garden toronto in the garden um, the, the, the game that they won in Toronto, they didn't lead in the game until there was four seconds left. And it was just a, a clinic in, um, in, uh, in just handling your business on the road. They've played the most road games in the league so far, which is eight. And they're five and three in those games. Okay. So they only played three home games out of those 11 games or seven and four. So uh, George Cry, actually, I think was Doug Moe. What's the, uh, Mr. Arnovitz, what's the Doug Moe stat? You take, um, Road wins that you never home. iron your clothes in four seasons. Is that is that <laughs> I think that's the Doug Mo stat. We're we're actually gonna get to you have a collar the size of Delaware. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it is road wins versus minus home losses. Okay, so road wins minus home losses creates a number, and obviously the more plus the one you want. The Cavs are at plus four already. Okay. We've mentioned Philadelphia. Uh they're at plus three. So it's as hot as Philly is, they've got a lower, they're lower in the Doug Moe standings than the Cavs. I have another Doug Moe story before this is over, but I'll, I'll okay. let you keep going. Um, the, the Warriors, who are the number one, pretty much the number one team in the league right now, they have the best net rating. Um, the Warriors um, uh, number is plus two. Okay. So I'm very small sample size here, but what I'm saying with the Cavs is the Cavs are seven and four. And if you look at it, you know, sort of sideways, it's even better than seven yeah. and four. Now they received a blow information today. Uh, and that is that Colin Sexton uh, tore his meniscus and is out indefinitely. I, I think he's, it looks like he's going to be getting um, uh, evaluations on probably what to do about that, whether he should um, have a surgery rehab it, what type of surgery to have. But Colin Sexton's season is in the balance right now. And on a personal level, this is a guy who did not do a contract extension. And you immediately, I, I'm sorry, I just can't, I have to immediately feel bad for a guy who's in this exact moment and gets hurt. Um, uh, the, you know, I don't know if he got insurance, but this is just, it's terrible. Um, now, from a team standpoint, obviously, this is a blow. They're losing uh, a scoring guard. Um, but the thing is, is that Sexton hasn't been as big of a role on their team this year as he was the last few years. In fact, we talked about Dame scoring down. Sexton's averaging more than eight fewer points a game than he was a year ago. 
is playing seven fewer minutes a game. Um, his shooting percentages are roughly the same, although his three-point shooting is down dramatically. Uh, his overall shooting is roughly the same. Um, and so he was not in basically what's happening is that Ricky Rubio has been playing great for them. So now Rubio and Darius Garland are going to get extended minutes there. Um, that's, I, you know, the Sexton thing is, is problematic and that's, uh, I don't know how that's going to affect him, yep. but Evan Mobley. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Um, we talked about Mobley a couple of weeks ago on here. He has only gotten better. They won in New York on Sunday and Mobley had 26 points. It was um, his best game so far this season. The package of stuff that he did in that game from spot up threes to dribble drives to floaters to um, cutting off the ball to offensive rebounds to driving and finding guys to, 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 to pick and pop, to pick and roll. And that's what we're I'm talking about offense. We talked two weeks ago about how he's contesting shots at a higher rate than any uh, you know player in the league. He looks spectacular, Mr. Pelton. And the Sexton news is, is, is hard to hear. But if you're a Cavs fan, you're looking at Evan Mobley going, oh, my God, they might have something. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if the Cavs are unable to sustain the start, even though, as you mentioned, you know the, the Rubio Garland backcourt has been their best net rating with any two players on the court who have played reasonable minutes by a huge margin. And certainly as compared to, they've been outscored pretty dramatically with Sexton on the court thus far this season. So it'll be interesting to see because that's a lot of possessions to redivide among players, but I think they can figure it out and and maybe more of those going to Evan Mobley as we saw in the garden is one way that happens. And yeah, from a long-term standpoint, his development is so much more important and, and maybe Darius Garland's as well, because I think Garland has played quite well, has shown that the improvement that he made from his rookie year, where he was maybe the least effective high minutes player in the league to his sophomore year was legitimate. And if you have those two guys as building blocks and we'll see what happens with Sexton, you're in a position to start going somewhere. And that's where, you know, Cleveland hasn't, has been searching for that guy since LeBron left and in Mobley, it looks like they finally have it. Vivid Seats wants you to get to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seat Rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code HOOP. That's code HOOP, H-O-O-P. Visit vividseats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats, experience it live. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavily on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue and ready for the play. And boom, Onyeho Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the hypnotic team. Every season is hypnotic and tequila season. Hypnotic liquor, Bardstown, Kentucky, 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Yeah, it was it was really interesting to watch the New York game because they went to Garland Mobley, Rubio Mobley, you know, two-man actions a ton. 
against the Knicks. It's incredibly hard to guard. You know, Mobley can get behind a big and soft coverage, and then it's like, look out, as you said. And he's also a good decision maker. Um, I, I think you can learn a lot about a young player by how his team utilizes him sort of in, in the workaday possessions that consume a game, right? Like, you know, middle end of the first quarter, right? Like, like what, what are you running in a half-court game utilizing your five player in respect in their respective roles. And Mobley is becoming just a fulcrum of that offense. And, you know, you're right. I mean, you mentioned, I mean, uh, the Rubio Garland backcourt is what, what's the net rating, like a plus 15. Um, yep. I mean, you feel terrible for Sexton. They have played their best basketball with those two guys. Now I'm with Kevin in this sense that, you know, we, we talk about expected field goal percentage and, and as Kevin brought up in the previous segment, it's actually more important to measure, you know, shot quality on, on defense. And they're giving up a lot of good, easy looks. And in, there were times against New York where Derek Rose got whatever he wanted off the pick and roll. Jared Allen's a nice rim protector, but, you know, not the most effective. He, he ain't Al Horford switching out, you know, on, on, on a pick and roll. Mobley's young, but really good contester. Um, you know, Rubio's fine, has always been heady. Uh, I mean, Garland's small. There's not a lot. I don't see this team being better, much better than average defensively when it's all said and told. And the current stats suggest, at least in terms of the shot collect selection that they're giving up, that they're not much better than average. But I think, Brian, they're going to be fun, if nothing else. It is fun to right. watch players with, this, with sort of the stage presence of Mobley develop and i love you know it's funny rubio sort of landed on this roster I, it, it was it was i had one of those moments in the beginning of the season because i'm going senile that it was like i didn't re- oh wait I, did i remember rubio making his way to cleveland and sort of rolled my eyes because i mean look the, I, don't, I don't think rubio's best days as a pro are behind him and then now you realize what a is there a better tour guide in a second unit kind of a third guard to have if you're evan Mobley than Ricky well rubio? especially when you're coming yeah. off of two early 20 year old guards exactly he, he's magnified he's, he's perfect for yeah. that roster and when you consider the sexton injury unfortunately you know in terms of your next guy up it kind of looks something like ricky rubio now he's not going to shoot the way he did uh, you know in the garden the other he's day. not going to go eight of eight from three <laughs> no, like no, he he at the not. garden on sunday that's but, a hot take you know it was just like it, it it kind of you know you have this aha moment like Oh, what does Evan Mobley need this year among just sort of trusting his own instincts? And his, he's a great worker, but like, you know, 21 minutes a night of Ricky Rubio will do Evan Mobley just fine. Like, and, um, and, and frankly, Mobley's going to make Rubio look insurgent because, um, or resurgent because, uh, I mean, Mobley's that good. It's so much fun to watch. Mobley is insurgent as an in insurging into one of the best exciting young players in the league already out of the gate <laughs> because, uh, and, and, you know, uh, the Cavs were 28th in offense last year. Right now they're 10th. And it's not from Kevin Love. Kevin Love has been out with COVID. Also, the, another one of their the last year's rookie who played more minutes for them than anybody else, Isaac Okoro, has been out with a hamstring injury. They've already been missing guys. Um, but to jump up 18 places year over year without signing LeBron James, in fact, Cleveland fans are already joking like uh, this team is just just priming up for the last <laughs> LeBron tour. You know, just getting right and just getting right into position right when Mobley's hitting his stride when LeBron comes for the last the last act. Um, OK, so another team, small sample size. Team, this is also positive. We try to be positive here. How about the Wizards of Washington? Um, seven and three. 
despite um, missing some guys due to injury and despite Bradley Beal not playing great, quite frankly. Um, he's uh, his shooting percentages are down. I wonder if the new ball is affecting him. He's, he's shooting about 7% lower overall. His three point percentage has plunged from 35 to 25. He's averaging, you know, he was right there with Steph Curry for um, scoring title last year, averaged 31 a game. He's down to 24 a game. So he's down seven points a game. Yet the Wizards, with their influx of talent in the Westbrook trade, are playing terrific uh, team wide basketball. Um, they're highly ranked in all kinds of different statistical categories, um, offensive categories, defensive categories. Um, Wes Unseld um, looking very competent and uh, and showing almost no signs of uh, rookie head coaching uh, jitters. I'm sure those will come. He might, uh, if he was being honest, might tell you some of the stuff that happened. But for a first-time head coach to come in there and engineer um, such incredible growth like this, um, uh, Arnovitz, it's um, it's a it's a real it's a real feel good story for the first ten games of the season. Yeah, ranked fifth defensively, fifteenth offensively. So let's start there and kind of figure out and handicap this small sample size. So if you're skeptical, it's it's the fifth defense, right? This is one of the worst defenses in the league last year, and you would not think that the additions of you know Dinwiddie and Harrell and Kuzma and Kentavious oh, Caldwell Pope, obviously a good defender, and Dinwiddie's not bad. Um, but it, it's hard to believe that those additions would improve a dreadful defense and, and make it, you know, top five. Um, and yes, they have been the second luckiest defense if you take into account shot probability of the opponent, right? Like we've talked about this exceeding expectations. Uh, Wizards opponents are, 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 the, are the second least prolific um, offenses relative to what they're actually getting on the floor. But as you said, look, if I told you that Bradley Beal would not shoot better than 40% and and eight out of nine of his first games, you wouldn't have them where they are. And and I, I think when you start looking at what are sort of the signs of success, you know, Spencer Dinwiddie has always been a really productive pick and roll player. You know, uh, after he left Detroit in Brooklyn, um, always been solid. Not last season, obviously the washout notwithstanding. And he's been fantastic this year. Didn't have a great game against Milwaukee, but you know. This is not ball hoggery. I mean, he comes off a screen. He makes really good decisions. He's racking up assists. He's got like a, a better than three to one assist turnover ratio. He protects the ball. You know, he's going to get hot every fourth game and just take over. Um, and it provides structure and a counterbalance to Beal on the other side of the floor that makes them much tougher to guard, particularly when you get some of the stretchier guys out there. Um, like Bertans, their peripherals have been really good, Brian, right? They're they're absolutely taking care of the defensive glass. They're not turning the ball over. Um, and look, you can do a lot worse, even when Beal isn't going well, than just kind of running dribble handoffs with Gafford and Harrell with Beal. Like, it just creates good stuff, even if Beal's not shooting well from distance. Um, and an unsold's been great. And, you know, it's funny. I do all those coaching, you know, the, the kind of the coaching blacklist and and who's the next you know interesting candidate and you know Unsell didn't come up for a very long time and you started asking about him and and the one criticism you would hear from his from his proponents over the years Brian was that the guy doesn't self-promote enough you know he doesn't have an yeah. agent he doesn't do the schmooze fast he doesn't do the gurgle you know th there are all these things that that uh, you know aspirational assistant coaches do to get head coaching jobs and to get mentioned in those, in those conversations and unsell despite his pedigree, never did any of that. And, you know, cause when I asked, well, why hasn't he got shot? Then he, you know, then he gets the interview in Chicago. He gets a courtesy interview with the Clippers um, and a few others. And, 
you know what 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 is really I don't emerging. even remember the the Clippers interview. It was Boy, it was it, it was it, it was a courtesy interview back a couple of years yeah. ago. But but what people don't realize is just how freaking smart this guy is and how like absolutely addicted to preparation. He's you know, also this, been around a really long time. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah given know, the junior part of the unset, I right? know like, I, yeah. that, that's that happens because you know they always say you know one of the one of my lines about the NBA that is unequivocally true. I, I always ask this question and, and I'll do it for you right now. I've probably used it on you, but um, what is the biggest day in the NBA? And people go, Oh, uh, draft day. Um, oh, it's uh finals game seven uh, opening night, uh, Christmas day. And I go, no, the biggest day in the NBA is father's uh, day. Uh-huh. Because you look a call across the NBA, especially in the coaching and front office ranks and even the ownership ranks, and there's a whole bunch of juniors out there and nepotism reigns in the NBA. It doesn't mean that the, the, the sons are not as good as their fathers. In a lot of cases, they are even better. But there is a thing that when you are a junior that you do, you may have an easier time getting in, but you have to overcome, uh, you have to overcome certain things. Steven Silas, the head coach in in, uh, in Houston, is, a, is the same way. He had to overcome some things in his career because his first jobs early on were on his father's staff. Wes Unseld has been grinding in this league for over 20 years. When I came into the league when um, uh, in 2003, when I first started work covering the NBA, he was an advanced scout. He was out there grinding away as an advanced scout. So... Um, he has put in the 10,000 hours or 20,000 hours or whatever you want to get to this point. Yeah. I mean, that was something that came up last year when I was looking at the background of coaches and how much teams now, you know, seem to be defaulting to these coaches who are lifers who didn't play very much, if at all professional and didn't play in the NBA. And so a lot of those alas have been white coaches, Nick nurse, Chris Finch are kind of the examples that come to mind, but we've seen some of those uh, legacy cases with West junior, Steven Silas, JB Bickerstaff would be another one who were in the NBA at very young ages and therefore have accumulated a ton of experience despite right. being young enough to replace, relate to their players. For sure. Absolutely. Um, anything about the wizards uh, um, stand out to you, Pelton? Yeah, I mean, I think they're a testament to the value of not putting any bad players on the court. Their depth is incredible. <laughs> Boy, I think I could take that a lot. I mean, you're right. There are certain guys who are in their rotation last year who are not in the NBA right now. Right. And wow. the only guy in their rotation this year who rates worse than replacement level in my metric is Davis Bretons, who surely is going to shoot better than 33%. From We've been three saying that for two so years, though. So well, only- he, he did come around in the second half around the same, same time, I think, that Westbrook got going. But obviously, you can trace this directly to the Westbrook trade and the way that that you know, just created so much depth. They've got four players or five players in the top 100 in my wins above replacement player metric. And three of those came out of that trade in Harold KCP and Spencer Dinwiddie and Kyle Kuzma isn't far away from being in that group. And so it just turned them from a team that was thin to a team that's incredibly deep. And that's got a lot of power. And I think especially over the course of the season, because of their ability to withstand when they do face more injuries. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore his seatbelt. One guy didn't. 
One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Okay, so, um, oh, by the way, Thomas Bryan and Rui Hachimura haven't played yet this year. Um, Hachimura is out with personal reasons. Um, I don't know when he's going to be back. Um, and Bryant is over. Is he coming back from Achilles or ACL? ACL. ACL. So uh, we'll see with that. But they're not even they're not even whole yet. Um, no, and, and, and they, by the way, Gafford being as good as he's been is, is, is another answer to this question of why they've overachieved. Well, they, you know, he was, he was a, a deadline day trade. Um, and I'm not sure like how interested in him, like how, how motivated they were into getting him. Uh, they got him from Chicago, uh, on deadline day. And then he was so good in the last, you know, third of the season last year that they extended him this off season. And, uh, he's been a revelation for them. So extended him, extended him with two years left on his contract. I know. Pretty remarkable. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah. So, uh, Tommy Shepard, by the way, their general manager who, um, you know, was on some thin ice. He kind of got the job, you know, on a short leash and he's done a very nice job. I don't think they're headed for, I was just talking to a scout about them, um, recently. And, you know, he's he said, I don't think they're headed for the finals, but, um, you know, they definitely could be a playoff team, which, um, wasn't something I would, people necessarily would guarantee after a Westbrook trade. All right. So here's a couple of just quick hit things that I'm noticing this year, I thought you guys might be interested in. Number two defensive team in the league this year, so far by defensive rating, the Denver Nuggets. And this has been a slow march. Michael Malone has made this a a key element of trying to get them to be a better defensive team. Two years ago when they were, uh, in the conference finals, they were 16th in defense. Last year, they were 11th. And guys, this is the one. Number one defensive rating player in the league. In other words, the, the guy who's got the whose team score the, the fewest amount against when he's on the court. Nikola Jokic, MVP, defensive leader. And this is a weird stat. I know it's not a stat we refer to a lot. But just so I went back and last year, the number one guy who was a starter, because sometimes you have guys who are non-starters sleep up there, was Gobert. So pretty good, right? The year before, the number one defensive rating who was a starter, Giannis. Three years ago, number one who was the starter in defensive efficiency for individual, Giannis. Nikola Jokic is leading that category. Denver Nuggets, number two. <laughs> uh, and, the, and the Nuggets aren't, you know, they're suffering a little bit right now. Michael Porter Jr. has got a back issue. I don't know what's going on there. That's worrisome. They just shut him down. Um, Jamal Murray, obviously, out indefinitely. They're not playing their best basketball. But how about Nikola Jokic out there being the, being the anchor of a great defensive team, guys? Well, it's a combination of the small sample size theater. And this is someone who has been underrated. I know who has been been underrated on the defensive end of the court, because I think what, one of the things that happens with Jokic and we see this with a lot of big guys is the things that he's bad at defensively are the things that are really obvious defensively. Like he's getting scored on at the rim. He's struggling if he's out in space and that's easy to see. But the fact that, you know, the team always defensive rebounds extremely well when he's on the court. That's hard to see. The fact that they never, they, he doesn't, 
that they don't actually foul that much. He fouls a lot, gets in foul trouble, but doesn't necessarily send a lot of people to the free throw line. That's tough to see. Nikola Vucevic, his namesake, I think is someone else who maybe suffers from the same thing and hasn't gotten enough credit for, again, not a rim protector, but his teams have consistently defended better or defended at least well when he's on the court. Uh, Jokic, when he was had the biggest on-off in the league a couple weeks ago, a big factor in it was three-point percentage, uh, opponent three-point percentage. That has come down now. Uh, they're shooting 31% with him on the court, 35.5% with him on the bench. But there was a really great graph by Owen Phillips on Twitter before he got hired by the Knicks last week, which was a, a great move for the Knicks uh, to add to their coaching analytics team, uh, pointed out that if you looked at kind of the on-off leaders, there was a really strong correlation with how well opponents were shooting threes with them on the court versus on the bench, which is to the extent that an individual player has any control over that, they certainly don't have much control, if any, over that over like a 10 game stretch. And it drives a lot of these early on off numbers. And it's something that really need to, I think, look at first before anything else. Mm. All right. So how about this? Now, last week we saw Carl. This was a very strange thing, and it got buried with all the other stuff that was happening in the league. But Carl Towns's Twitter account liked a tweet, and then he gave some long explanation about how it was some sort of quasi hacking. I don't know, whatever it was. Um, you know, Carl Towns, you know, was trying to say everything's fine. But let me point something out. Carl Towns this year is shooting forty. Nine percent on three pointers on uh, the same number of attempts he had last year, six a game. That's 10 percent higher than last year. Overall, he's taking two fewer shots a game. Okay. So he's shoot, he's he's drilling his threes like top five in the league on a, you know, and he's sometimes you see, you know, because like right now, do you guys know without looking who the three-point shooting leader is in the league percentage-wise? I I'd no probably idea. give you Carmelo. Yeah. He's in the top 10, Nemanja Bielica, but he takes, you know, one a game, you know, less than one a game. This is a guy who's taking a fair amount of threes and sitting at a high percentage point. Like if I, if I were them, I'd be like, how about taking nine threes? How about taking 10 threes a game if you're going to still shoot 50%? We mentioned on the pod a couple of weeks ago about how Anthony Edwards has taken a lot more shots a game than he was a year ago. He's, um, he's taken five more a game on average. He's taken three of them are, are threes. And Towns' numbers, Towns' shots are down. And, you know, I wonder how happy Towns is about that, truly. The other night, he took 11 shots, I think, in a loss. And um, I think, you know, uh, Edwards took 22, Arnovitz. Um, so what I'm telling you is Carl is shooting the three really, really well. I don't know if it's going to last, but uh, I'm not so sure he's happy about his attempt load. Right. I mean, look, you're playing with not only a ball-dominant wing like Edwards, but when Russell was healthy, I mean, he is a guy who, I mean, he's eats up about 15 shots a night. So, I mean, I, I think it, it was probable at the beginning of the season that Towns was going to take fewer shots. I mean, I mean, the question with Towns is, you know, I have a lot of sympathy there organizationally, right? Like he's played, it has been an absolute dumpster fire since he got there. The question and always, before he got there and before he got there and, and probably after he's there. I mean, it, it <laughs> so on, on one hand, you, you, you give the guy all the, all, all you know, the empathy in the world, especially since, you know, his representatives at the time of the draft said, would you like us to get you, you know, second to the Lakers? And he said, no, look, the Wolves got the number one pick. I am the number one pick. 
this is how it's supposed to be. So, you know, you, you do have a great deal of sympathy. I mean, I think there's also the other question, which is, you know, whether he was hacked or not. And I don't believe it for a second. Um, the NBA is an interesting sport in that having a top five player provide your top 10 player for that matter, provide you a floor, right? There are only five guys on the floor at a time. And if you are an elite, elite player, if you're in the quote MVP conversation, it generally provides a team with a floor. And I, I mean, I think the question for towns is, you know, how much do you want to sort of contribute to that? Um, what kind of floor are you going to give your team? How good are you? Um, and, and I'm always reluctant to have this conversation. It sounds very shock jockey. Um, obviously, he, he would tell you, <laughs> well, I'm, you. hey, dude, I'm shooting 48% from three. What more do you want? And, but 49. I, 49. Sorry, I, I'm, I'm cheating him <laughs> out, of a, out of a point. But I, I do think that's the question, right, is they've been very bad for a very long time. They've been poorly managed and poorly owned. Um, and that said, you know, how transcendent are you? Are you because, you know, Russell Westbrook five years ago during his MVP season, there was nobody else on that team. Right. And and he got them to six in the West. Uh, this right. is generally what happens with elite, elite players. It does. You're being you're, you're being a kindly saying here that, you know, you don't know if Towns is a super elite player, even though he's regarded as such. I think he's a super elite player skills wise. I mean, I, I think it's the question yeah. of, you know, how much do you want to assert your 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 sort of skills on the game. I mean, how much do you want your team to embody your identity irrespective of what the hell's going on in the front office or how many people have come in and out or, or how unappealing the market is to people who like sunshine. I, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like, like, I think no, that's, that's the question. Here's the thing. You go talk to executives and stuff in this league about Carl towns. They'll say the right things, but then they'll say, look, Jimmy Butler played with them for one year and wanted out of there. And I know that that's really, really, re, you know, reductive, um, but it is what it is, but, you know, I, I will be interested to see, you know, Towns is putting up good numbers and playing really well, you know, um, and obviously Anthony Edwards is ascendant. So keeping an eye on that is, I think, let's take a look at this. Let's take a, keep an eye on that. Uh, all right. Now this is the last thing we're going to talk about. And I think it's, um, I have some strong feelings about this and Pelton, I think Arnovitz does too. Um, the older I get, and I guess I'm heading towards curmudgeon status. Some would have argued I reached that long time ago. Welcome. I, I think it was the press conference kids for him, Brian. Okay. Well, that was a while ago, so I'm in trouble. <laughs> um, the older I get, the more stuff that David Stern said I agree with. Is that the standard? Uh, okay. I mean, that's one of them. And I got to tell you guys, the situation with sideline clothing is getting out of control. I will tell you that the game I was at in Phoenix last week, Daniel Tice was playing for the Rockets. He was out of the he was he was out of the game injured. He was wearing a t-shirt and neon green shorts like he was at the beach. Not like <laughs> dress shorts, like he was wearing like neon green like neoprene shorts or something. It was like he, he, you know, he came, he came in from the backyard to come to the sideline. There's dudes um, wearing hats on the sideline. LeBron wore a hat last week, you know, and I mean, I'm not necessarily saying that you got to be like David Stern, you issued that edict and got all that, 
all that flack for it where, you know, he wanted everybody in a suit. I'm not even saying you got to be in a suit, but let's like, I mean, Adam Silver's NBA, the players just do whatever they want. And I understand in the bubble, you know, it was, it was a major sacrifice for everybody. And so, you know, if just wear whatever you want to get over and over there. And then there's the whole thing about the coaches and um, Mr. Arnovitz, you are a proponent of the coaches going back to suits and something happened in Toronto over the weekend. Right. So, so I'm going to say contrary you, I'm the players can do what they want. That, that's their, that's they can wear um, shorts and a t-shirt. I, look, look, I'm a, I'm a cultural libertine, you know, like I'm, you know, do what you want. And, and by the way, if you are an NBA, but I, I want to talk about the coaches for a second, but if you're an, and by the way, so if you are an NBA head coach and you want to look like you're doing yard work on the sideline, that's between you and your God. But one thing that I one thing I always appreciated about the Los Angeles Lakers for all the issues I might have with their organization and, and, and some of their principles is, you know, we also have Dr. Jerry Buss. They understood that an NBA game is an event. It's a production. And, and with productions comes certain semiotics, the coach on the sideline. Um, with with a suit, the lights, the, the, the you know, the, the Lawrence Tanter voice on the PA announcer, right? Like, like what makes an NBA game special is that it's special. And there's certain things that distinguish that. And I just don't think it is too much to ask for these coaches who make millions of dollars a year for 10 hours a week to not look like they're like taking the dog out for a piss. Okay. Like I, I just, you know, it, it's four nights a year. And, and what I think needs to happen and, and to speak to Toronto is Nick Nurse did something, in my opinion, truly brave, Brian. On the other night, Friday night they, uh, at, at Toronto, he, he showed up in a blazer. Um, it was sort of a lilac blazer. Hey, might not have been my sartorial choice, but, you know, I've always admired Nurse. He, he was rocking this like burgundy wine blazer during the playoffs when I was covering in 19. He's a guy who appreciates sort of the, 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 the sartorial options that fashion he has fashionable offer. eyewear he is, he is fashion forward. Right. Um, and I think it is time for nurse and bless his heart. And I would like to enlist a few others. And I want to take this opportunity to appeal to them. And I'm talking about you, Quinn Snyder and Dwayne Casey in Detroit, who's always, I think, valued kind of look, not necessarily the accessories I would choose, but but Dwayne always looked sharp, right? Prior to this COVID nightmare. I'm talking about Eric Spolster, who was unequivocally the best dressed coach in the NBA prior to COVID. I don't know, but um, that he wore sort of like black ties with black suits. It was Brian always... Winhorst, Omaha, Nebraska. I don't argue with a gay man from Los Angeles about fashion. <laughs> okay. Just be quiet. Okay. So Eric Spolstra. Who, whose lineage it came up under Pat Riley. You know, these men always talk about how much uh, respect they want to pay to to sort of th their, their predecessors in the profession. Well, let me tell you what Chuck Daly is thinking right now. May he rest in peace. He's repulsed by a bunch of guys who look like they're picking up their kids at lacrosse practice at 7.30 p.m. on a sideline of an NBA game. And I'm also going to appeal to Frank Vogel, who, look, no fashion plate, but you were the head coach of the Los Angeles Lakers. I, I don't want to see you you know, in, in fleece. I don't want to see you in a quarter zip. And I just think it's not too much to ask. Like, let's get the NBA back to the premium product it is. These guys look ridiculous. By the way, I want to thank Candace Buckner, who's doing the Lord's work at the Washington Post on this issue. Had a great piece. Everybody read it. Um, it is time for an intervention. 
Um, enough is enough. We're, you know, go get your boosters and go get your suits. You know, the Miami Heat, another question with Spolstra. You know, we always talk, Brian, you and I always talk about how they're a buttoned up organization. Well, you know what? Then they should literally be buttoned up, not zipped up, not, you know, th- this is, is, this is, a, it's becoming, I, I think, a, a sartorial emergency and it's cheapening the product and, and damn it. I just I, I can't do it anymore. And, and I'm, I'm with Candace here. And, and let me tell you, if, if it takes a woman and a gay man in this media press to lead this charge, then then, then time has come because I, I, you know, these schlubs must be held to account. Wow. Well, you know, uh, I I think there's even there's even more guys that I could, you know, I think Monty Williams always had. Uh, great clothing and he's you a know very what? And, and here's coach. the thing brian they most of them want to they're afraid what they're afraid of is that they'll be called vain that only a vain man you know cares about wearing a suit and looking like a fashion plate you know um because yeah, because nothing you know nothing says you know manlyhood like by looking like you're sitting around the dorm taking bong rips right like <laughs> you know and, and that, and i love the the series he's had felt he's had so many different things to compare it to it's, i mean, I mean at, some point, down the line. at some point he needs to compare it to me since i'm wearing a half zip that i just went running and before we recorded this <laughs> podcast I, now i would say my perspective i i think if people are if coaches are scared they should fall and embrace it I don't think that we need to go back to a rule where everyone is wearing suits. No, I'm against rules. And this is a personal appeal. I'm against rules. I'm for. They actually had a vote. The, the coaches had a vote before the season. I remember talking to Doc Rivers about this a few weeks ago. He said the vote was actually closer this year than it was last year. Um, but the thing that the coaches like, I've heard several players, uh, several coaches say this is um, they like that it makes everything easier on packing that when they pack for these long road trips, they don't, you know, it's so much easier to do that. I'm sorry. Are they taking commercial (laughs) air travel? Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Are you like going through TSA at Atlanta airport that even with clear, you're waiting 30 minutes. Oh, I'm sorry. Are are there people handling your bags and putting them? You just leave them at your door. And then the guy comes in the bellhop and and does the, like it makes it easier. Like, do they even touch their bags? Well, they have to take them from the from the door to the bed and unzip oh, okay. them. Okay, okay, okay. You know? Maybe they're packing them. But I, Brian obviously is also a European soccer fan, and I think one of the things I enjoy about soccer is the contrast between you have Pep Guardiola over there on a three piece suit that probably right. cost more than the opposing manager who's wearing a tracksuit <laughs> is making, right. and it's another layer to the personality of the, the managers in soccer is whether they're a track suit or a suit. Well, and, you know, in college, we've seen that for years. So, you know, Shashevsky is down there. He is wearing Armani, right? But then Rick Majerus is wearing a sweater. Bob Knight's wearing a sweater. Uh, Bob Huggins is for years, long before the pandemic was, would wear like a, uh, a wind cheating, like a wind cheater, <laughs> you know, and like, yeah, what you was know, that? Um, you know, so, you know, I, I'm actually, it'd be interesting to just see the different styles, you know? Um, and it is interesting. Like when you look at like the way the coaches are wearing them, like Spolstra is wearing like perfectly tailored, um, like very well matched, uh, the, of these, uh, outfits, like all black, perfectly fit tailored stuff, whereas opposed to other guys are just wearing, you know, uh, kind of the baggy stuff. So <laughs> different guys are, are treating it differently, but um, you know, this, is, this isn't really a small sample size. We've now had, you know, 
dating back to the summer of 2020, uh, a year and a half of this. Yeah, um, we've seen enough. The Nick Nurse thing is is a major moment Friday night. He put on a blazer. We'll see if he gets called from the league because the league call, loves calling people about stupid stuff. Like, why don't you match your assistants? You can't, it's not that you can't wear a blazer. Everyone has to. So, I mean, I'm just hoping. What I'm trying to do is I want to encourage the other coaches. Yeah, all the assistants match. Now, isn't there like time being used on scheduling and making oh, sure everybody has the exact same pullover and pants? No, I mean, there is. And, and again, I just want to look. I'm not, I don't expect Greg Popovich to get on board and look, Pop can do what he wants. Um, and again, I'm with well, Kevin. Pop I, getting I, on board would be influential. It would, but I mean, he's a, I mean, but, but I, you know, and I'm with Kevin. I, I think everyone, I actually love the idea of there being Eric Spolstra back in Armani while, you know, Pop wears whatever Pop's wearing or, or you know, you have Pop actually dresses, Pop actually dresses worse as a Team USA coach than he does. Yeah. Team USA coach, he has like sweatpants and, and, and he, wanted, he doesn't even tuck his shirt in, untucked shirt and sweatpants when he's a Team yeah. USA coach. But I, there, I, there is an element of it I think it's different for games during the summer, which is part of why the bubble felt different. Well, no, and I, I'm with Brian in the sense that you give, you know how like when Paulie and Goodfellas like tells Leota, look, you did all the junk that you needed to do in prison to get through it. That's fine. That's kind of how I feel about the bubble. Like I, I acknowledge, <laughs> yes, there was, right? Like you, you did what you had to do, right? Yes. It, it's, it's, it's a question of, all right, we're back in the arenas. There are fans yeah. in the building again. Um, Just think know. what David Stern would say. Just think what David Stern would say. It wouldn't be pretty. There would be David Stern would have come to the coaches meetings and he would have spoken for 90 seconds. And that would have been that. So I realize in Adam Silver's NBA, that's not the way it goes, but, uh, all right, we've been curmudgeonly enough. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Hoop Collective podcast. Thank you to Kevin and Kevin. I I look forward to this every year. I think the truth is we did it now because I wanted to do it now. I was tired of waiting. I didn't want to wait another week or two. Um, we'll talk to you, uh, you guys all later this week.